Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Today is my uh, 60th birthday. Uh, it has lent itself to some reflection. I, I'm, you know, this is still kind of coming out off of the, uh, the gracious sabbatical that uh, you guys blessed me with. And, um, and so I've, I'm taking some time today and next week and maybe even the week after that. I, I, think, it, I think I can do it in two weeks to, uh, to just share a little bit, if you want to call it unpacking a little bit of, of what the Lord did um, in me uh, and uh, dur- during that sabbatical and, and, and this time. And so what, what I'm going to talk about today, the topic I'm going to talk about is you know, our, our church's mission is to make disciples who make disciples who change the world. That, that is, you know, we want to make disciple making disciples. And uh, I didn't go off to think of new ways to do that. That was not what the sabbatical was about. Um, but one of the things that happened along the way because of a little book, and I highly, highly, highly commend this book to you. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And it speaks to the heart, the very heart of God. And so I need to say out of the gate, what I'm going to talk to you about today, there's no way that I can sift out what's not ideas that flowed out of that, that book. And uh, so just know that, um, that, that that's the truth about uh, much of our journey today. But here's, here's something that has kind of become a new foundational thought about making disciples for me, uh, is what is what we talk about today out of Exodus chapter 34 is mission critical to making disciples. It's mission critical to our church. It's mission critical to our own life journey as disciples of Jesus. So I, I want you to know that. Now to begin our, our kind of our message time today, I'd like for you to do this. I'd like for you to turn to somebody near you and tell them what you think is probably the most quoted passage of scripture, maybe the most quoted verse in, you know, in your lifetime. What do you think of when you think of what's the most quoted verse of scripture uh, out there? Just share, share that with your neighbor for a second. Okay. Next task, Um, what do you think is the most often quoted scripture, most referenced scripture by scripture writers? Tell your neighbor what you think that might be. Now, if you actually have your app open or you, uh, the Bible app to our page, or you printed out the notes, um, you probably are thinking, I know what it is, because you're going to talk about it, and you'd be right. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 34 today, focusing on verses 6 and 7. And uh, I want to read that, because th- this is a, an incredible place where God made the decision to tell us who He is at his heart, at the core of his being. So I'm going to ask you, I know we've already done the responsive reading, but I'm going to ask you to read along with me 
out loud with full voice from Exodus chapter 34. And we're going to read verses uh, 6 through 8 together. It says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, we come needing to see you, needing to hear you from you about who you are. Because, Lord, we have been lied to by the world, by our own flesh and by the devil of who you really are. So I am asking God today, God, maybe for a born-again-again experience for all of us, so that we might be rooted in knowledge of who you are at your heart, at the core of your being. Reveal yourself, Lord. Holy Spirit, open our minds. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see our God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, in a moment, I want to do a a quick kind of history to get us to where we we are in Exodus chapter 34. But before I do that, because I know that the world, our own flesh, and the devil seeks to rob us of the reality of who God really is. And he does it in this passage in a very, very significant way, I think. When we read those verses, most of us, because of our experience in the world, we get kind of stuck on that third and fourth generation thing. And we look and say, is is my sin, are are, are my grandkids going to pay for that? Are they going to pay the penalty for my sin? Is that that what God's saying, that he's going to punish them because because of, of my sin? And I I want you to know if that is your interpretation, because I've heard people interpret that passage that way. If that is is your interpretation, you are in conflict with much of Scripture. Now let let me just point out one passage of Scripture that kind of stands in contrast to that in Ezekiel um, chapter 18. I want you to look at this passage with me. It says this, What you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No, for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parents will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. Now, the crucial thing to see in what 
God gave to Ezekiel here is this. This is about a son who does not follow in the unrighteous path of his, of his father. Does not follow. Exodus chapter 34 in verse 7, what we read there, is pointing to children who continue to live out the same sins that their fathers or their mothers, that their parents did. Now, there's a parallel passage to, to this uh, Exodus uh, 34 passage back in Exodus chapter 20. Look at this with me, if you would. Verse 5 says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, notice this, of those who hate me. This, that third and fourth generation thing is about those third and fourth generations that are continuing to live uh, in rebellion against God. But then God says, but showing mercy and steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, this third and fourth generation statement is uh, it's poured out on those three and four generations later who are continuing this pattern of rejecting God. See, when, when this says that God visits the sins on the third and fourth generation, what it's saying is God is allowing the impact of bad decisions that parents make to affect their kids. Now, that ought to give all us parents pause. That ought, to, that ought to cause us to do a check on our own sinful nature and lives and struggles that we have because it could impact three and four generations later. But we need to understand that God is not saying that I am condemning three and four generations down the road for Joe's sin. That is not what God's Word is saying here. Okay? The reason it's so important to grasp that is because we get distracted from that and, and we miss the beauty that God intends for, for us to get. You know, what we read just a moment ago from Exodus 20, that, that steadfast love for thousands, it, it, it was repeated in, in chapter 34, verse, verse 6 and 7, uh, that, that idea could also include thousands of generations. It could be understood that way. So here's what I'm saying. Don't let the enemy rob you when you read that third and fourth generation thing. Don't let him rob you of what's come before that. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to start out by giving you what I think of as today's big idea from this passage in Exodus chapter 34. And it's simply this. At heart, at the core of who he is, God is merciful and gracious. At the core of who he is, I'm not, I'm not denying other attributes about God. But I'm just saying at his core, at his heart, that's who God is. Have you ever heard the statement... Whatever you're full of spills when you're bumped. I started to say, turn to your neighbor and tell them what spills out when you're bumped. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to tell you this. When God gets bumped, what spills out is not wrath. It's not anger. It's not judgment. What spills out is mercy and, and grace. That, that's what spills out. Now, I told you I want to do some quick history to catch us up to this, this moment in, in Exodus 34. You'll remember back in Genesis. In Genesis, God chose a family. The family, he chose a man, Abraham, and his family, and he said, I'm going to bless the whole world. It was, was the, the people of Israel, became the, the, the nation of Israel. And God, God's promise is, I'm going to rescue. I've got a rescue plan for the whole world, and it's going to come through this family. 
Now, the record of Genesis ends with this family in Egypt. Things are pretty good when, when it ends. But when we pick up in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, things are not so good for the people of God, for this family. They are now uh, in captivity. They are, they, they are slaves in, in the land of Egypt. And so Exodus, when I think about Exodus, and I, I think about it, if you want to think about it, as this great dynamic drama, if you would, this great dynamic play maybe. It's kind of a two-act play for Exodus. Act one, God supernaturally, miraculously, in incredible ways, delivers his people from this captivity, from, from this enslavement. They've been there for 400 years, and God delivers them. Then act two of Exodus, God takes his people to the foot of Mount Sinai. And they stay camped at Mount Sinai for a year. And in Act 2, several things happen. But one of the, the first things, and really the, probably the most important thing that happens, is God conducts a ceremony with the people. It is a, a covenant-making ceremony. And God makes covenant with the people. And there are vows exchanged. God says, I'm going to do this. And the people say, we're going, to, we're going to be your people. God says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And so this ceremony is underway. And during part of the ceremony, God says, I need Moses, the one that I've chosen to be leader, to, to come up onto the mountain because I have to give some covenant instructions on how to keep this, this covenant that you've just agreed to. And so the ceremony is still supposed to be going on. It's supposed to be a great celebration going on down, down here at the foot of the mountain. Moses goes up, and God begins to deliver him these, these decrees. And God shares these things with Moses. And some of you will remember that the, the, the first two covenant vows that God says you need to keep as my people are, you shall have no other gods. And you shall have no idols. Don't create any, any images uh, of me. Now, while God is giving those things, what is happening back down in the covenant ceremony with the people? They're violating those first two. I mean, they're completely blowing them out of the water. They're, they're, they're supposed to be celebrating this great covenant with God. And now they're denying him and making idols to another God. Well, rightfully so. God gets angry. Moses gets angry. Moses comes back down the mountain, breaks those tablets that the law was on. God says, I'm going to wipe out all of them, Moses. You and I are going to start over. Me and your family, we're going to start over. We're going to build a new nation to, to deliver what I need to deliver for the world. And Moses says, God, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of be, you know, the, the, the big cheese, the big leader, the one everybody thinks of. But... I don't have to have that. Would you please spare these people? Would you do that? And God says yes. And then he goes on and says, God, would you, would you please? Would you please go with us? Because God said, okay, I'll, I'll spare them, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, God, would you, would you please spare them? Would you go with us into the promised land? And God says, okay, I'll go. And then something really interesting happens because apparently Moses is thinking, okay, I'm asking and God's answering and he's answering yes, so let me, let me go with one more. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asks this incredibly profound question of God. He makes this request and he says, God, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. 
Now, if you write in your Bibles, I would say it's important to connect God's answer. Okay? I want you to see how God answers. Moses, Moses has said what? God, show me what? Your glory. Watch how God responds to Moses' request. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asked for what? Show me your glory. God said, certainly, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. In God's mind, his glory is most prominently related to his goodness. If you do not get that, so often when I hear people talk about the glory of God, it's like this thing that we're supposed to run from. Friends, when God equates, when God says, sure, I'll show you my glory, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And then Moses goes, I mean, God goes on to say, and I'll tell you my name. I'm going to tell you my covenant name. That's what I'm going to do here. And he says, all my goodness. And he says, the Lord, the Lord. Now, I I hope you notice that it repeated twice. The Lord, the Lord. And the word that's actually translated Lord there is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And God's people would not write that word down. They would never write it down. And that's why our English translators, most of them, some translations write the word Yahweh. But some, many of the translators, instead of writing the word Yahweh, what they write is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, all capitalized, that is the covenant name of God being used in the scriptures. That is Yahweh. And the, the, the Jews believed, the Hebrew people believed that it was too holy for them to even, to even write it down. But in Exodus thirty three nineteen, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you I will pro- and, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious to and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses asked for God's glory and God says, I'm going to give it to you. And, and, and God goes on to say, you know, I'm going to tell you my name, and I'm going to define the deepest part of who I am to you, Moses. I'm going, I'm going to do that. And so when we get over to that event in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when God has put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and it says this, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. God, he is compassionate. He is gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Friends, this this ambitious request that Moses made of God in chapter 33, I believe, is the unconscious desire of everyone on the planet. It is our greatest unconscious desire to experience the glory, the profound goodness of God. Our hearts long for this. That's why when we're, when we're, you know, we're trying to do some activity that's kind of seeking a thrill, what you're really longing for is a thrilling experience with the glory of of God, with the profound goodness of God. When, when you read a book, 
or, or watch a movie and you long to have that kind of love, that kind of maybe romance, that kind of deep experience, what you're longing for is the glory of God, the profound goodness of God to love you that way. When you, when you see something beautiful, when, you, when, you're, when you're just kind of captured and awed by something beautiful, what you're longing for is the beautiful presence of God that we will experience in heaven one day. See, th these are all just kind of hints, kind of, kind of shadows of what we all long for, the, the, the glory of God. See, we were created for him with this, with this longing. Now, that longing has been distorted by the world, our own flesh, and, and, and the devil. In his great work, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, and I know one day some of you are just going to say, will you quit talking about C.S. Lewis? If you will start reading his books and come telling me what you're learning from them, I'll quit talking about it. Deal? Just, he's just such a, a great mind on, on the things of God. And he writes a, a, about this in The Weight of Glory, and he, he talks about these things that we, we see and we taste and we touch and we want, and he says, it's not the thing themselves. They're only, it's only a scent of a flower that we have not found. It's the echo of a tune we have not heard. It's the news from a country we've never yet visited. See, the reality is we're longing for more. We're longing for what Moses was able to identify. We're longing for the glory of God, his profound goodness. Moses realized what most of us don't. That that is the deepest longing of our heart, is to see the glory of God. And friends, by faith, trust, accepting and confidently knowing what God has proclaimed about himself is the most important thing about us. You remember that, that great statement by A.W. Tozer that we talked about weeks ago, what comes to our minds when we think about God is truly the most important thing about us. It's just, it's just the truth. I think many of you are probably familiar with uh, a passage of scripture out of Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, God, speaking through Isaiah, is, is telling his people how different he is from us. And he says, he makes this statement, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. In fact, my thoughts and my ways are as, as distant, as far apart as heaven is above the earth, which is supposed to help us understand just infinitely different. Just infinitely different. Now, when I hear most people quote that verse or use that verse, it's usually in the context of something's gone wrong and somebody's struggling and hurting and they've got questions and somebody will say, well, you know, our ways aren't God's ways. We don't always understand his ways are higher. But I want to challenge you to go back and look at the context of that passage in Isaiah 55 because it's in the context of God talking about his compassionate heart and his great desire to abundantly pardon sinners. It's about, it's about the heart of God. It's about his great compassion. It's about his self-revelation back in Exodus chapter 34. God wants us to know that. And here's what he's saying. Is our understanding, 
has been so messed up by the world, our flesh and the devil, that our understanding that this is his heart is just, there's such a great chasm in between it. That we, we always rush to think that God is mostly about condemnation, that God is about judgment, that God is about thumping us on our pumpkin heads. And that is not what God is about. And he's saying, I want to bring this gap closer. I don't want you to think of me this way because you are completely missing out on who I am and what my heart is. So that is what he reveals to Moses in Exodus 34. Moses is looking for God's glory, and God says, okay, it's everything that is about me that is good. And according to the Bible Project, this is the most quoted passage of Scripture by all the Old Testament writers, and it continually shows up in the writing of our, the New Testament. And, and what God is saying here is more than anything else, this is who I, I am. The KD commentary that I, that I read when they were talking about the Hebrew words that were used here, it talks about them being piled up on one another. And it says this, the words pile upon each other to express the gracious nature of God towards us. By piling these words upon one another, Scripture exhausts vocabulary to express the loving kindness and grace of God. In other words... All of human language cannot, you, it, you ever, have you ever been in a, a moment in time where you couldn't find words? You just couldn't find the words to properly express what you were feeling in that moment? That's what this is about in Exodus 34, piling all these words on. God is just exhausting the language that we have to express his goodness, to express his profound goodness, to express his glory. And so it's throughout all of Scripture. Let me point to just a couple of them. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30 through 31, we see this. God says, when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your father that he swore to them. Later in the history of the nation, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, God says, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. If you go into the Psalms and, and, and you read Psalm 103, that King David, who uh, the scripture calls the man after God's own heart, in verse 8 of Psalm 103, David quotes from Exodus chapter 34. He, he, he makes this quote. Look at it with me. Verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then David basically gives a mini sermon. He explains, here's what this means to me. When I read and hear those words, here's what I hear. It means that he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frames. He remembers that we are dust. Here's this man after God's own heart, and he reads God's self-description of his own heart, and he, he realizes that God is saying as high as the, the heavens are above the earth, that, that's how, how 
deep God's compassion is and our understanding is, is distorted. We need to know this. And he says, as far as the east is from the west, and in scripture, they never meet. That's how far he puts our, our transgression. And then he says, this is about a compassionate father's heart. A loving father has compassion on you. He doesn't feel towards you like a master does for a slave, but as a father for a child. And Psalms 103 is just one of the greatest descriptions of the heart of God, as God has described himself. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? Jonah, you know, dude gets eaten by a big fish because he, he, runs, he runs from God. And in, in the book of Jonah, you get kind of to the end of the book. You know, God calls Jonah to go on mission, to go to the, the most hated enemies of God's people at that time, the Assyrians, he tells them to kind of go to the capital in Nineveh, and Jonah hits a boat headed in the exact opposite direction, headed to Tarshish. Why? Well, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we read why. God, Jonah is talking to God. He's, he's in prayer to God, and he's already, done, he's already done the whole thing in Nineveh. He finally went back, and he did what God told him to do, and the city repented. And it ticked Jonah off. Look what Jonah says in verse 2 of chapter 4. It says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, but when I was back home and you told me where to go? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were what? A gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. What's Jonah quoting? Exodus 34, he's saying, God, I know this is true about you. That's why I didn't want to go tell those heathens to repent. Because I knew if they did, you'd forgive them. They're horrible, wretched people, God, but you'd forgive them. This was, this was kind of a backwards way of seeing the glory of God. But it's such, it's such a part of the heart of God to be gracious and, and, and long-suffering. And as much as we can see it in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. When we get over to the Gospels, John begins his Gospel in, in John chapter 1, telling us that the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. And then in verse, it, 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 verse 14, it tells us we've seen Him. Our eyes have beheld His glory. And then it tells us what His glory looks like. It's filled with what? Grace and truth. That's, it's just, that's who, who He is. Over in Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Those who are declaring the gospel, they're talking about the gospel, they describe it as God's word of grace because he's a gracious God. It communicates that's who he is. When we get over to the, the writers of Hebrew, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he calls God's throne a throne of what? His whole throne is a throne of grace. That's what the, the, the writer there describes as God's throne it's like this. It's not in your notes. You can write these verses down if you want to go back and look at them. In James chapter 15, uh, verse 11, it, it says that you have, have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and, and merciful. First Peter uh, chapter 10, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 says that he's the God of all grace. Now, I don't believe it was just an accident that when Moses said, God, show me your glory, that what God, God said, okay, I'll do it. I'm going to show you my profound goodness. And this is, this is what it looks like. Now, because this is the truth about who our God is, 
I want to give us three quick applications about that. Just three quick applications. First one is this. Because it's the heart of God to be gracious and merciful, we can be confident in him for our salvation. We can have confidence that we can be saved by this compassionate, merciful God. That what he did through his son Jesus is true. He is gracious. He will save anyone who will by faith earnestly trust in what Jesus did on behalf of the glory of God. Jesus was the revealed glory of God. Jesus is the profound goodness of God expressed. Now, I told you that uh, about Tozer. One of the, the great works uh, of Tozer in his day was he, he constantly was trying to tear down religious idols of his day. And one of the idols that he kind of took on was uh, repetitive praying. Uh, the, some of the people in his day would repeat a Latin phrase, Kyri eleison Christe eleison, which is, is just Latin for uh, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And, and they would just pray that. But they would pray it meaninglessly. And, and Tozer challenged it. He basically said that what was going on, he said this, it was just a mournful refrain, a hope, a wish with no real belief that it could actually happen a belief that God would actually have mercy on them in their situation. Friends, do you pray that way? Just kind of pray the same thing over and over, but really don't believe that God in his graciousness wants to do that for you, that God wants to have mercy on you, that God wants to display that. See, that's what salvation is about, is coming to faith that he will do what he has said he will do, that he wants to save you. He wants to save all who will come. He wants to pour out his grace. But now here's the deal. At the end of that great, great expression by God of who he is, he did say, don't, don't, don't forget this, at the end of verse 7, he did say that he will have to deal with the guilt. He, he's not going to clear it out in, in any way. He's not going to just dismiss it and look the other way. Though his mercy and compassion and long-suffering are the core of his heart, he cannot just pass over sin. He cannot just give it a wink. And what that means is if you sit before God in his word, you know, maybe week after week, but you ultimately reject his love and mercy and grace, what he promises that you will find will be his judgment. It, it will come upon you. But that is not his heart. That's not what he longs for. That's not what, what he, he hopes you know him as. He, he wants no one to know of his judgment. So take hold of his heart. Take hold of, of God's word. Maybe, maybe pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51, verse 1, where David cries out to God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Friends, knowing that that's the heart of God impacts your prayer life. If you know you can go to God that way when you stumble, when you fall, when you sin, when you do really dumb things. Or maybe, maybe you need to pray the prayer of the tax collector in Jesus' in Jesus's story that he told in Luke chapter 18, the tax collector that couldn't, couldn't get close to others in worship because he was, he was so overcome by his own sin and he just cried out 
God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I know, God, that this is reality of my life separated from you. Or maybe you just need to claim the promises that, that God made in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 where it says, everyone, sometimes it'll say anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and if you will, by faith, trust, confident, knowing that God will do what he has done in forgiveness through Jesus Christ, if you will receive him, you will know the heart of God. Secondly, because it's the heart of God to be gracious and merciful, we can be confident in him for all the grace we need today, right now, at any time. See, when God, when God revealed his glory to Moses, it, it, it wasn't something that Moses earned. Now, now somebody might look at that storyline and think, well, you know, Moses, oh my goodness, he stood in the gap for his people. What a great guy. Surely God owed him something. God didn't owe Moses anything. And that was why God said, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I mean, when he was telling Moses this, I'll show you my glory, he said, now Moses, you need to be straight about this. I need you to understand. I, I, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll show grace to who I show grace. It's not that you earned this, Moses. It was a great request. I want to honor the request, but it's not because I owe you anything, Moses. You didn't, you didn't earn the opportunity for me to pass before you. So often we get caught up in a world that believes that. We just kind of get struck by this, that somehow I've got to earn. In his work, Knowing God, the great theologian J.I. Packer said this, that most people in our churches really don't seem to have a grip on the fact that God will deal with them by grace. And he goes on to talk about, you could walk into a church and most people could carry on a conversation you know, about budgets or about, you know, the children's ministry or about, you know, something else. But if you sit down and try to have a conversation with them about grace, he says that people shut down because we don't have a great understanding of it. And there's a lot of evidence, I think, of that even in, in today's church. And it's just so hard for us to overcome because we've been brought up this way. I mean, we, we just, you know... Santa Claus is coming to town, so you better what? Not pout. You better be good. You know, uh, it, in, in school where kids are given, you know, candy or special parties if they, you know, do something really, really good. Uh, the, the economy of our world is basically earn it. That's the economy. That's not God's economy, friends. It's not the economy uh, of the kingdom. Now, yes, there are places in the world, you know, it's, God, does want us, God, God does want us to go to work and work hard and, and earn. God, God wants us to do that. But even that has the economy of grace. And so when we get caught up in that in our walk with God, it looks a little bit like this. You know, we think if we're holy enough, then God might hear my prayers. We think if I do my quiet time consistently enough, then surely God's got to bless me. If I do everything right all the time, then surely my kids will turn out right. If I, if, I, if I cleanse myself of all sin, then surely God will send revival. Does God want us to do all those things? He does. He wants us to do all those things. But not so that we think we're going to earn something from him. 
Friends, it's not about earning with God. It's just simply about grace. It's about the compassion he has. Everything is a gift. Everything we have is a gift from his heart. He doesn't owe us anything. Nothing. Everything we have comes from him. If we got what we deserved, you know, we'd be toast. It would be, it would be over. We wouldn't be here. But he is a gracious God. He's a gracious God. He's gracious to us when we are unbelievably moronic. In Genesis chapter 19, some of you will remember the story of Lot. And God has decided because, and God has been long-suffering with these people, but they continue to test him in Sodom and Gomorrah. They continue to practice evil. And God says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring temporal judgment now. And so God sets out to do this. And so God sends angels to Lot to say, you need to get out of town. And Lot kind of hems haw around. Seriously, go read it. They literally almost, these angels have to almost drag Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And while they're dragging them out, the angels are saying, God has said, run for the mountains. Head that way. Go to the mountains to be safe from the wrath that's about to come. <clears throat> you know what Lot says? Joe's translation. That's too far. Mountains are too far. There's this little village in between here in the mountain named Zoar. Can I just go there? I mean, God's about to rain brimstone and hail down on this place. And my feet hurt. But you know what God says? Because he's compassionate and kind to us in our moronicness. I'm trying not to say the S-T-U-P-I-D word. He, he, he says, okay, go to Zoar. I'll watch you there. I'll protect you there. He is so gracious. He, he's so merciful. Even, even in our foolishness, that, that, is, that is who he is. God is gracious by, by nature. All, all I deserve, all you deserve is punishment for our moronic decisions. But the God of all grace and mercy just pours it out on us. That's who he is. Friends, if your primary thoughts of God are destruction and judgment, you don't know the heart of God. And you are being robbed. You are being robbed by the evil one. That's his heart for you. Have faith in that God that he wants to treat you better than you could ever imagine being treated. Have you ever asked someone, hey, how you doing? And have somebody respond better than I deserve. You ever had that experience? That should be a common expression from all of God's people. Because we're all doing better than we deserve. And it would be good to follow up that statement with, better than I deserve because I have a gracious God. Because that's the truth about us. We could declare that in our lives. Lastly, because it's the heart of God to be gracious and merciful, we can be certain of God's desire regarding how we engage the world, how we engage others. See, mercy and compassion and grace are essential 
the most essential expression of God's character, how he treats us, and he longs for that. He expects it. He even commands that we live that out to the world. Look what God's word says in Zechariah. He says, thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Colossians, Paul writes, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Not, not just to people in the family of God, but towards those outside. Making the best use of time. Let your speech always be what? Gracious. Now, I, I want to say, I believe if Paul was writing today, he would, he would add, let your speech let your tweets, let your posts, let any way you use words be gracious. Friends, the church is missing that one today. The church is missing this one today. We get caught up in the pig pen of attack on others. God commands us to treat others in the way we have been treated by him. It is his heart. Because God knows the only thing that will draw a lost world to himself is seeing what it looks like for people who have his heart. People who are reflecting the heart of God. Now, as Dave pointed out in the message that he did a couple weeks ago, we got to use our words. But people want to see. They want to see this God. This God of mercy and grace. And if you're in Christ, you know, Moses asked, God, I want, to see, I want to see your glory. And God said, okay, you can't see my face because you'll surely die. Because my face is holy. But friends, I want to say this. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You have seen the face of God if you know Jesus. That's God. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the profound goodness of God. Jesus is the first face of God. And if you've seen Jesus, if you know Jesus, you've seen the face of God. You've seen the glory of God. You've seen the profound goodness of God. And Jesus calls us to be his face to a world. That that would be our first face. Compassion. Mercy, kindness, long-suffering, forgiving. You know, when we think about that, we usually think about extremes like Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of missionary Jim Elliot. They were on mission with God together to take the gospel to that tribe in Ecuador who had no knowledge of God. And they killed Jim. They murdered Jim. And a short time later... Elizabeth goes back in to take the gospel to those same people who murdered her husband because of compassion, because of the goodness, because of the kindness and the long-suffering of her God. That's, she was the first face of God. I think even more closely to home and in our own generation about those family members whose Families' lives were snuffed out while they were in Bible study in downtown Charleston by Dylan Roof about six years ago this summer. And they forgave him. 
And they looked him in the eye and said, we forgive you. And we are praying that you will come to know the compassionate, merciful, forgiving God that I know. They were the first face of Jesus. Friends, that's what it means for us to see the glory of God. That it impacts us so dramatically that we become the glory of God on display. We become the profound goodness of God. We know him that way, and and this is the truth, until we know him that way, until we're not cowering to this God that we're afraid of, until we know him that way, the world will not see his goodness. The world will not see his glory. The world will not see his grace because we won't be those people. So we got to be those people. You know, if we'd honest, most of us would say we kind of missed the boat on that. But it's never too late. It's never too late to say to God what Moses said. God, show me your glory. And hear God tell you, I've been waiting for you to ask that question. I've just been waiting. Because I want you to know my profound goodness. I want you to know that about me. Because that is the heart of of who I am. And when that happens, when, when that actually happens, you will do what Moses did in verse 8. There's no other real response. You'll bow down and worship. So I want us to take some moments before we leave today to worship. To worship the one who displayed the glory of God to us. To worship the one who displays the profound goodness of God to a waiting, watching world. Jesus, let's pray. Jesus, we come in these moments, in this moment. We, we want to pray the prayer of Moses. We want to pray that prayer. God, show me your glory. Because we long for your glory, your profound goodness, your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness, your long-suffering, that you forgive and pardon our transgressions and our iniquity and our sin. You wipe it away because of who you are. And you displayed that most prominently in your Son, so we come to worship him now. Our hearts come longing. We want more of you, Jesus. We need more of you, Jesus. I'm going to ask you, if you would now, to stand and worship by calling out for Jesus, in whose name we pray.